0: The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Making Headway Towards Better Outcomes in Intermediate to Advanced Stage Hepatocellular Carcinoma, a multidisciplinary tumor board on implementing novel local, regional, and systemic approaches. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash NUC860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available.
1: Welcome to the peer-view session. Today's session is called Making Headway Towards Better Outcomes in Intermediate to Advanced Stage Hepatocellular Carcinoma, a Multidisciplinary Tumor Board on Implementing Novel, Local, Regional, and Systemic Approaches. My name is Riyad Salem. I'm Chief of Interventional at Northwestern. We have Lipika Goyal, who is Medical Oncology at Mass General, soon to be at Stanford, and I'm at who's head of liver cancer at UT Southwestern. It's a pleasure for them to be here with me. So HCC is a topic that over the last 10, 15 years, of course, for interventional radiology has become certainly much more interesting. The incidence continues to rise, much as a result of aging, even post-SVR, and also uh, fatty liver disease. So it continues to increase and will continue to be an issue that we need to deal with. And recognizing that we need to work as teams and as groups uh, continues to be extremely important. Nevertheless, even with all the new therapies that we are applying, the mortality continues to increase, and this is why we are all committed as a group, as a society, as team members, to really reverse that trend in years to come with all of the therapies and approaches that we have available to us. The flow of patients uh, as they mu- as they go through algorithms is really multidimensional, uh, and patients will touch multiple disciplines at multiple times. Surgery, hepatology, IR, medical oncology, and back and forth. It's quite a complex flow. It's quite a complex algorithm, but that's the reality of how patients actually flow. And it's important that we all recognize that as uh, contributing members of the tumor board that you'll hear about a little bit later on to know that this is how patients flow. And we want to maximize all of the treatment options available for these patients. So for today, obviously, uh, we want to have a good discussion. We want to update everybody on the contemporary data that exists uh, in HCC, particularly in some of the systemic therapy options, navigate that landscape that I talked about, that that interplay between intermediate and advanced HCC that I think we all encounter at tumor boards, what is the best decision-making, what are the good kinds of discussions that can be had when we look at these treatments, and think about all approaches of of treatment decision-making processes when we think about HCC. So, without further ado, I'd like to uh, introduce my very good friend, Lipika Goyal, who will talk about uh, navigating the therapeutic landscape at Advanced HCC. Lipika.
2: Thank you very much, Riyadh. You know, it's really an honor to be here at SIR. And over the last couple of years, I've had the pleasure of inviting Riyadh and Amit to different MedOnc heavy uh, conferences. And I've also had the privilege of speaking at different IR conferences. And I think that really speaks to the multidisciplinary collaboration that we're doing so much more in the last couple of years. Because as Riyadh said multiple times, collaborating is the way forward for HCC. So as everyone knows, that uh, in medical oncology, there was a long period of barrenness in that we didn't have, between 2007 and 2017, we didn't have any FDA approvals. Um, There are a lot of shots on goal. And what you're seeing here between 2017 and 2020, a lot of that was based on the hard work during those 10 years. So it was not for naught but really over the last couple of years, we've started to see many more therapies for HCC. And uh, in 2020 it is the first time we had a regimen that finally beat sorafenib. Sorafenib was king for a long time. And the three things we look at as medical oncologists in terms of what we, how we decide on therapy is efficacy, safety, and tolerability. And what we learned with Atezobev is that it has better efficacy than sorafenib. it has better tolerability than sorafenib and safety was relatively equivalent. And so that's how we think about treatment. So I'm going to talk about that, and I'm also going to talk about um, Dorvitremi, which is another regimen that was a positive phase three trial, and some different things on the horizon. And so this is the modified BCLC staging system. As we know, as we've been using this in HCC for many years, it's a staging system that provides both prognostic information and helps us make therapeutic decisions. As Riyadh mentioned, this uh, place right here between BCLC stage B and BCLC stage C at this interface is where we have a lot of our conversations in tumor board and think about when do we bring in systemic therapy, when do we bring in um, liver-directed therapy, and, you know, a couple of things I wanted to bring up because I'm going to mainly focus on this advanced stage uh, BCLC stage C. There are three different flavors of BCLC stage C. One, people who have portal vein thrombosis, and that could be VP 1, 2, 3, or 4. People who have extra hepatic spread, so involvement of lungs, um, bones, peritoneum, or three, a performance status of one or two. And you can have one, two, or three of these factors and be qualified as uh, stage C. And so what I would say is um, we're gonna go through some cases where people, their only qualifying factor is performance status of one or two, and otherwise they're a B or maybe even an A. And so that'll be an interesting way to think about how do we address uh, HCC in those patients. And the other thing I wanted to bring up is this right here, which is, this is new in the BCLC staging system, which is patients who have diffuse, infiltrative, or extensive bilobar liver involvement. BCLC um, staging now recommends that we think about systemic therapy for these patients because they don't benefit as much from tastes. So we're going to have a little sparring later on where we discuss a case with uh, infiltrative HCC. So now with the staging system, I'm going to focus right here with people who have BCLC stage C for a long time with serafinib, the median survival was less than a year. Now it's considered to be more than two years. And what we see in the first line, we have atezolizumab, bevacizumab. We have durvalumab and tremelimumab. And if either of these are not feasible, we still have serafinib, lymbatinib, and durvalumab. And then I will not focus on second-line treatment so much today, but we have a couple of different options in the second line and third line as well. So what's the evidence for supporting the recent changes in the BCLC staging? So I'll first just give one, one small slide about immunotherapy. So as we all know, the biology for immunotherapy won the Nobel Prize in Medicine in 2018 with Taz saku um, Hanjo and James Allison, winning this for their work on pdl one and CTLA-4. Um, we know that uh, Jimmy Carter got immunotherapy um, for his melanoma and it melted away his brain mets. And we know that there have been many, many approvals for immunotherapy throughout um, uh, oncology. And so there's PD-1 inhibitors and CTLA-4 inhibitors that are checkpoint inhibitors. And um, our the main function of our immune system is to be able to distinguish self from non-self. And while that sounds like a pretty simple concept, Mother Nature has actually developed quite a complex system for being able to help us recognize self from non self. And our normal cells have these checkpoints or these proteins that tell our immune system to stop and not attack so we don't develop autoimmune disorders. But cancer cells are very clever and they hijack this system and they have those proteins on them as well. And so that's the way they evade the immune system. And so the uh, PD-1 inhibitors, they work later in, the immune, later in the immune response in the peripheral tissues, cfa 4 inhibitors. Um, this is thought to be the leader of the checkpoints, and it works early in the immune response in the lymph nodes. And so there's these two different classes of checkpoint inhibitors that are effective in HCC. So I'll talk about the two trials, one for ATEZOBEV and one for DERVATREMI. So for the ATEZOBEV trial. Uh, the key eligibility criteria were that they have, patients had no prior systemic therapy for HCC. They all had advanced or metastatic disease. Um, they had a performance status of zero to one. And importantly, they required an EGD um, within at least six months. And this is relevant for you know collaboration with interventional radiology, because sometimes it takes weeks in order to be able to get an EGD. And it's a good time, if we want to get good tumor control, to think about different IR-directed therapies so people don't get in trouble uh, with the amount of burden of tumor they have in their liver. So in this trial, the patients who got Atezobev had a median survival of 19.2 months. This is a blockbuster over 12 months. I think our my friends in breast oncology and prostate oncology kind of laugh at me a little when I get excited about 19.2 months because, of course, luckily in their cancers, people live a lot longer with metastatic disease. But 19.2 months compared to 13.4 with serafinib, and the response rate was 30%. This was a positive phase three trial and this is why this is the new champion in hcc Um, in terms of the confirmed overall response rate 30 percent with a cr rate of eight percent and median duration of response of 18 percent it's an amazing feeling in clinic when you can tell a patient that their tumor has shrunk and especially say all your tumor has disappeared Um, it's such a change in being in clinic in hcc to be able to tell patients this and we have patients (laughs) Three, four, five years out, who are off therapy and you know, immunotherapy has hopefully cured their disease. Still, uh, time to still time to tell, of course. Um, luckily, within this study, the bleeding rate was not significantly higher with atezobev, despite atezo being quite a strong VEGF inhibitor. Of course, again, the EGD was really important, and it also required no recent GI bleeding. And you can see that atezobev was overall better tolerated than serafinib in that there's a lot more diarrhea and hand-foot syndrome uh, with serafinib, for example. Um, and then they also did quality of life surveys. As you know, really important part of oncology trials these days is how are, you know, what's the cost of living longer? Or do people have poorer quality of life? But in fact, the time to deterioration with Atezobev was 11 months compared to 3.6 with serafinib. So in my experience, giving Atezobev Uh, People tolerate this really well. With Himalaya, this was another frontline trial. Patients got DORVA, DORVA plus TREMI or serafinib. Um, This arm was closed because this arm was seen to be more effective. And in this trial, the survival with uh, DORVA TREMI was 16.4 months compared to 13.8 months with serafinib. Again, a positive phase three study. And this is now another good option for patients with uh, HCC. This does not involve any VEGF inhibition, so it's particularly good for patients who have varices or have a history of recent GI bleed. An important part of uh, the subgroup analyses here is that Dervatremi, and this is similar with the Tezobev, help patients with macrovascular invasion and help patients with extrahepatic um, disease. Um, That's important because one thing to remember about systemic therapy trials is these are not trials with patients with liver-limited disease. It includes a lot of patients with widespread metastatic disease, so in terms of cross-trial comparisons with trials with liver-only disease, it's just something to think about. Um, The immune-related adverse events, around 35, 36 percent with uh, dual checkpoint inhibitors, about 20 percent of patients required steroids. So the take-homes, we have two new kids on the block for frontline treatment of HCC. Atezobev, 19 month survival, 30% ORR. Durvalumab, 16 month survival, 22% ORR. Um, and then I will just end with some emerging approaches in first-line HCC. The COSMIC312 study has been completed. It showed some activity with an improvement of PFS with the combination of Cabo plus compared to Serafinib. Um, the Lenvatinib Pembro results are really awaited. It's a phase three trial of len versus Lenvatinib alone. In the phase one, there's a 36% response rate. The Checkmate 9DW is a combination ipinevo trial. In the phase uh, one study, there was a 32% response with this combination. So this is going up against and and We're excited for those results. There are also several new early phase studies that are um, in development and currently ongoing. So many new combinations to look at. So this is my final slide. You know. There are lots of different ways that we can approach patients with HCC. How do we choose between liver-directed therapy and systemic therapy for options for uh, advanced disease? And do we need to choose? You know, Something that all three of us up here talk about is often, it's really just a matter of timing. Who goes first? Do we do things in combination? The things that we want to consider are tumor burden, liver function, And then, as I mentioned, we always look at efficacy, safety, and tolerability. And then at the end of the day, it's a lot of shared decision making with patients, having people meet people from all different specialties and having a decision about what to go first. I think what we really need is some biomarkers to decide who's going to, what patients are going to benefit from, for example, Y90 up front versus a TESOBEV up front, addressing intrinsic and acquired resistance. You know, there still is about 15% of patients who don't respond to TESOBEV. It'd be great to be able to. Give them Y90 or tastes up front. Um, studies that inform sequencing Our liver directed therapies priming for immunotherapy? We need to understand that. Uh, of course, for patients with child PUB or liver or history of transplant, how can we help them? And then ultimately, we need to, as Riyadh was alluding to in the beginning, figure out when is the best time to shift from liver directed therapy to systemic therapy. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks, Lipica. That's fantastic. That sets the stage. Let's, um, let's go ahead and do one quick uh, case. And you heard Lipka talk about infiltrative disease, and that's certainly been something that's been challenging for all of us for a long time. They're probably, you know, worst biology patients, etc. But let's take a look at this case here and get some discussions going. So this is a, uh, pa- a person, patient, uh, otherwise healthy, that has a 15-centimeter infiltrative HCC, uh, some weight loss, so ECOG performance 1, and some right upper quadrant pain. Good liver function, uh, child pua, so by definition, BCLCC, advanced, as Lipica was describing, and no metastases. So what we have here is a large lesion that's infiltrative in someone that is a candidate for a variety of treatments. So let's start with Dr. Singal, uh, UT Southwestern. How would you guys approach this case?
3: Yeah, I think we had, the first thing that I'd point out is this is a patient who falls between um, a B and a C. This is one of the cases that Lipica was talking about, you know, large intrahepatic tumor burden, um, you know, so one could argue. Really, the decision comes into considering local regional therapy, like radioembolization, or is this patient better treated with systemic therapy? I think the first thing is um, we would definitely present this patient in our multidisciplinary tumor board, where we would get an input from all different disciplines. So this decision should not be made on a one-off basis. But otherwise, this patient has good liver function; would be eligible for both systemic therapy and local regional therapy. Um, So, you know, this is someone who basically has infiltrative disease. It looks like it's isolated to the right side. I think it would depend on sort of how much, um, sort of what his left side looks like, and if you could get away with doing a a, a radioembolization and treating this um, uh, and seeing how he responds in that fashion. But I think that this would really be a discussion between radioembolization versus uh, a Tezobev assuming that he doesn't have uh, large varices or a history of bleeding. Lipka?
2: Yeah, I fully agree with Amit. You know, I think the issue with patients with infiltrative disease is they're included in all trials and they're part of a subgroup analysis. So it's really hard to really understand how these patients do. So at the end of the day, what's the arterial supply to this and how effective is LDT going to be? They have bad biology, how effective is systemic therapy going to be? We've both seen that LDT and um, systemic therapy help some of these patients. We've seen both of them fail for some of these patients. So as Amit said, multi disciplinary discussion, both in conference and then with the patient.
3: And we had one, one other thing that I just add here is that you know, much like we recognize that ChalPew B isn't a ChalPew B, we know that ChalPew A's aren't ChalPew A's. And so there are now distinguishing features like the LB score that can help you sort of stratify these patients. So one could argue if this is a ChalPew A with a poorer LB score, then you may be potentially more likely to use systemic therapy. Whereas if he has a preserved alvi score, then you could say like, okay, I'm going to use, you know, radio So I think some of these factors are, can help distinguish this. But at the end of the day, I would argue this is an area where we don't have great evidence and there's no right or wrong decision. It's really a matter of expertise. So I think it's a matter of, um, you know, what you have available at your center as well. Uh,
1: yeah. So for the audience, I think something, one piece of homework for everybody is to look up the Alvi score. This is a way to get objective information on liver function status, et cetera, as opposed to some subjective components that plague the child-pew score, right? So this is one thing to look up uh, later on. And Amit's very right. I mean, uh, you know, ALB1s do well. They tend to be the ones that go to resection in our series. Uh, but the, two, the, the twos may be the ones that might benefit for something. As an interventional radiologist, when I see this, uh, I've seen great results with LRT. I've seen fantastic results with the Tezolab in large lesions. I'm the first to admit that. Very surprising, but I have seen it, and so you have to acknowledge that. That's what we are now. That's the toolbox that we now have. When I see something like this, you know, I worry about lung shunting. If I'm going to think about tear, this may lung shunt, right? And so this way, maybe I can't get a good enough dose, right? So I really have to think outside the box. And you know, somebody like this may go on to get a, an angiographic study, and the lung shunt is too high and then you can't really treat them very effectively, this would go on to systemic therapy. But we all acknowledge, and I will acknowledge, uh, that I've seen great results with systemic therapy with this as well, and I think that's a very, that's a very reasonable option. Anybody in the audience want to contribute how they might handle this infiltrative? Because one of the things I'm anxious to see over the next five years is when people now start to treat these in real life and publish their sort of single series uh, of infiltrative disease, it'll be very interesting how they do. But does anybody have any comments on how they might manage this or, or any questions on, on this case, this infiltrated case. Yes, Suhail. Yeah, so the question is about chemoembolization. Uh, my, my bias is that you can't treat this entire thing with chemoembolization. You have to cherry pick, which means you'll by default have some treated and untreated disease, and Lipica and Amit have something that can treat the entire thing at the same time. So this is, I think, with very large lesions. This is where I think you really want to be able to treat everything at the same time. That, that's, my, that's my feeling.
3: You know, one one thing that we didn't discuss, actually, once again, depending on what his left lobe looks like, this guy could also be resection. I mean, he's a child PUA. If his platelet count is fine. I mean, this is the other thing that would be offer him a curative therapy. I mean, high risk of recurrence, of course, but this would be another thing that should be on the table.
1: We would definitely measure the FLR to see what that looks like. Um, When we do that, if that was our discussion in tumor board, just for everybody knows... Uh, and we were going to evaluate for lobectomy, for example, we would do the pressures at the same time. So we do all that stuff at the same time to make sure that, that all that stuff is prepped in case they end up going to the operating room, because if they have high pressures, they won't get resected. But we do all this stuff up front. So something to think about to, to, to compress all the treatments that the person, that the patient is going to get. So, um, and it could so be a great
2: patient for sequencing, where one of us goes first and the other yeah. us goes second. Yes. And could you share a little bit about your experience now that you've had a lot of patients who get a TezoBev and then get Y90 in terms of impact on arteries and your ability to be successful after giving Bev?
1: So I used to be much more nervous about arteries with Bev. Um, and for some reason, and I don't know that I can entirely explain it, that, that seems to, to be much less frequent now. And maybe because we're treating larger tumors, I don't know. But, but I'm no longer as concerned as I used to be. Now, in, in other primaries... Uh, there seems to be, I think, still a persistent problem, but in HCC, those that are usually chemotherapy-naive, and this is not even chemotherapy, right? This is immunotherapies. That does not seem to be a, a factor. So I have, for example, treated patients that are on atezolizumab are doing extremely well, and then one lesion is progressing. And that's a PD uh, by the textbooks, but why why go to something else when you can just do a focal ablation, an embolization, a Y90, whatever, and maintain the systemic therapy. So I have many patients, actually, that's what we're doing, and we're thinking outside the box, right? Because the theme here is that we have limited treatment options. We want to maximize each treatment and not just uh, reflexively say, oh, 1PD means I must switch. The patient's tolerating well. And you saw the data on the QOL with the TSOBEP. I mean, it's, it's very good. It's a very well-tolerated regimen. Again, new information for all of us to, to really recognize. So I'm less concerned about the BEV, particularly when, when something this large. Now, um, sometimes I've seen even atezobev and other therapies lower the lung shunt. So like you talk about sequencing, because what if you get a really good result but you want to augment that? And that's where I think the tumor board is very helpful because we can't do everything just waiting for each trial to tell us exactly what to do. We have to have some, use some our, our clinical experience apply the best uh, uh, data that we, that we have to the best of our ability, experience matters, and then see what we can do to sequence, right? I think it's very important. I mean,
3: One other thing that I would bring up is, let's say you do treat this patient with radioembolization or atezobev and he has a response. I mean, this is somebody who has liver localized disease right now. And um, if he has a response, um, this is somebody, depending on age, comorbidities should also be considered for liver transplantation if there's a response. I mean, this is, our goal is curative therapies, our goal is long-term survival. Um, And so that's why if we can get these patients to surgical therapies, that's what allows us to achieve those long-term survivals.
1: So so the theme I've noticed over the last five years before I hand the mic over to Dr. Singal for his presentation is a lot of -of out-of-the-box thinking now. We're transplanting people that have sustained good response with PVT as initial presentation. All of these things that were initially deemed long ago as absolute contraindications doesn't matter because as you personalize treatment and you think for the patient here, this is a patient is doing extremely well, they're two years out, the PBT's disappeared, we're gonna think outside the box and do something different. That's the intent of personalization of care and that's, that's what we did. So um, here in this case, um, you know, there are multiple options that we talked about. You know, however, you know, you, you try to transition either LRT systemic, systemic uh, LRT. Uh, the varices is something you need to think about, right, if the patient has not had uh, endoscopy. Maybe actually I can ask Ahmed what his approach is to these patients uh, now, because he's probably seeing a lot of people that may or may not have had endoscopy and how that relates to a tizobab.
3: Yeah, so I think you know this is actually important. So like, what we're we're making sure is that people are actually up to date with variceal screening. This is standard of care for any cirrhotic is to have variceal screening. And what we're trying to do is even before patients require systemic therapy to make sure if they aren't up to date with their variceal screening when they are diagnosed with their HEC to refer them early so we make sure that we have this EGD in hand. And so when they require systemic therapy, we're not then waiting for the EGD. So early getting that EGD done is is better. But it is, as, as Lipika pointed out, it is important for us to do this, so we continue to risk stratify these patients and minimize the GI bleeding we're seeing in clinical practice. So in your
1: tumor board for the interventionalist, the EGD component is a factor, is a variable to receive a TZOBEV. That's something you've got to be thinking about. So now it's a pleasure to introduce Dr. Singal. who will be talking about optimizing decision-making uh, of local, regional, systemic therapy. I mean
3: uh, thanks, wead. So um, as, as Lipika and Viad both pointed out, um, it's always nice to do these because it really does highlight the multidisciplinary nature of HEC decision-making, as you um, also saw from this, uh, this last case. So um, I'm going to start just with uh, emerging multimodal approaches in advanced HEC, and then I'll quickly pivot um, to, to earlier stages of disease. So one of, uh, one of the other interesting um, areas that's coming about is this concept of TT fields which is being used in combination with systemic therapy. Um, so I think many of us probably haven't heard of this before, but this is something that I think is promising and interesting um, as an alternative therapy. So TT fields are alternative electric fields that, um, that can disrupt charged particles during mitosis lead to cell death in in dividing cancer cells, spare quiescent cells, so spare non-tumor cells, um, and may augment what we see with systemic therapies. So um, we're gonna start with just a a brief video um, reviewing how TT fields work, and then I'll go over the the data for what's available in terms of advanced stage HCC. So uh, I think we have a video now.
4: In metaphase of cell division, cells are a rounded shape as the mitotic spindle forms. Intracellular components, such as macromolecules and organelles, are naturally charged. Tumor-treating fields, or TT fields, disrupt cancer cell division by physically interacting with molecules required for mitosis. When alternating electric fields are applied to cancer cells, they disrupt microtubule polymerization. Tubulin dimers align with the electric field and are not able to form microtubules. This prevents the organized assembly of the mitotic spindle required for normal cell division. The inhibition of microtubule formation leads to metaphase arrest and cancer cell death. In addition, these deformed microtubules can lead to abnormal DNA segregation between daughter cells, which also results in cancer cell death. TT fields can also affect cells after metaphase. If a cancer cell has passed metaphase and enters the cytokinesis phase, the cell takes on an hourglass shape. This state under TT fields creates a non-uniform electric field inside the cell, creating dielectrophoresis. Net forces push the macromolecules and organelles toward the mitotic furrow, and this disruption leads to structural disorganization and cancer cell death. Transducer arrays can be placed on the scalp, chest, or torso to deliver TT fields that kill cancer cells. The placement of transducer arrays is personalized for each patient.
3: So you can see that this is um, sort of an interesting concept um, and very different than some of the other therapies that we use um, for cancer in general and for HCC. Um, And these uh, tumor-treating fields are frequency-tuned, so they really are targeted to specific types of cells. And so you can see here, you would adjust the frequency depending on A, what type of cancer you're treating. And the nice thing is, once again, this is part of the reason why it's able to spare um, these quiescent cells and and be relatively well-tolerated. So this has been evaluated in a phase two study, the Hepanova trial in advanced stage HCC. So this was um, done in 27 patients in combination with serafinib. And you can see that TT fields plus serafinib was able to induce um, you know, fairly high rates of disease control rate um, of 91%, um, and objective responses in 18%. Now, as you heard, there's clearly been advances in, in the systemic therapy field. And now atezobev is um, you know, the preferred therapy in the first-line setting. And so now there's a phase three trial um, in combination with atezobev and tumor-treating fields. And this has been granted FDA breakthrough therapy designation. So we will probably see these data come out in the next several years. So, of course, I don't have to tell anyone here that the AASLD and other societies recommend local regional therapy for many patients with BCLC stage B disease, so liver localized disease that are not amenable to surgical therapies. And the AASLD does not recommend one form of local therapy over another. So, here, you know, chemoembolization, radioembolization were both thought to be um, equally uh, efficacious in terms of overall survival, although. Um, once again, several people have shown that the progression-free survival um, and time to progression is significantly longer with, uh, with radio embolization. So um, we also recognize that there are prognostic scores that can separate out these patients with intermediate stage disease. One of the prognostic scores here is the 6 and 12 prognostic score. Um, not saying that this is the best, but this is just one of several that have been proposed. What this does is it adds the largest tumor diameter plus the tumor number, and when you add these two components, you get a linear score um, up to sort of however high that number may go. Um, Basically, if you have a lower score, your prognosis is better. Um, The higher the score, the prognosis is worse. So you can see if you have a score um, of six or less that your median survival is around 49 months versus a median survival of only 16 months for those that have a sum greater than 12. And this may help determine who are the best patients for um, local regional therapy, whether chemoembolization or radioembolization, with the idea that if you have a lower score, sort of less number of nodules, and lower uh, uh, maximum tumor diameter, that you may be, have a better response to local regional therapy. And these patients with large tumors or multifocal bilobar disease having a less likely chance of good response to local regional therapy. Now, as you heard, this is a complex decision. It's not like you can simply use these single scores and say, oh, the sum is 16, and so I'm going to go on to systemic therapy. It really does depend on the distribution of disease, um, et cetera, in terms of what your likelihood of response is and your tolerability in terms of your um, uh, decline in liver function over time. But these are some ideas in terms of who may be better treated with locational therapy versus systemic therapy or combination therapies in the future. Now, um, uh, uh, the other thing that we have to talk about, um, and we've referenced this in the, in the prior tumor board discussion, is liver transplantation. Once again, liver transplantation being one of our curative options um, for patients with HEC. So for, um, for patients who undergo liver transplantation, we know that we can achieve five-year survival well beyond 60% and many patients achieving decades of life. Um, As we had mentioned, we used to be restricted to the Milan criteria, so one tumor, five or less, or two two to three tumors, each less than three centimeters. Um, But now we are able to extend the benefits of liver transplantation to more and more patients. And so we have the concept of downstaging, which I imagine many of you are already familiar with, in terms of having larger intrahepatic tumor burden. For example, um, a single tumor up to eight centimeters who gets treated with local regional therapy then comes within Milan criteria and is then able to undergo liver transplantation. Furthermore, even if patients are beyond this UNOS downstaging criteria, so liver localized disease or small vascular invasion has a good response to local regional therapy, you can still perform liver transplantation via a living donor liver transplant pathway. Really what this means is that local regional therapy can be a nice bridge or a downstaging approach to achieve liver transplantation, once again highlighting the communication between the two disciplines. Now when we think of intermediate stage disease, you also saw this in terms of a debate between systemic therapy versus local regional therapy. And this clearly comes into these quote unquote B minus patients, right? these patients who are BCLC stage B, but with larger intrahepatic tumor burden. This was a uh, uh, um, propensity-matched analysis where um, Kudo and colleagues compared those patients with larger intrahepatic tumor burden who were first treated with systemic therapy, in this case, linvatinib, versus local regional therapy, in this case, chemoembolization. And what the authors found here was, surprisingly, in in my estimation, the the survival was longer with systemic therapy than with local regional therapy for patients with large intrahepatic tumor burden. And this was most um, related to smaller decrements in liver function over time. Now, this was a retrospective analysis, propensity score uh, matched, and so far from conclusive. But this is now leading to large phase three randomized control trials that are specifically evaluating this question of systemic therapy versus local regional therapy for these patients with large intrahepatic tumor burden, two of them being listed on the slide here. Now of course this doesn't have to be either or, right? So it doesn't have to be local regional therapy versus systemic therapy. There has been discussions of combining the two um, in terms of our, our approach to intermediate stage disease. So there, you know, in the past when we were restricted to serafinib um, and then lenvatinib, there was thoughts of moving TKIs to earlier stages of disease, and there's a rationale for doing this um, in terms of ch- um, you know uh, changing the the Angiogenic switch here, um, and then also um, in, uh, impacting VEGF surges after you treat with local regional therapy. Um, so, you know, there is preclinical rationale for potentially a benefit of, of TKIs combined with local regional therapy. However, all of the studies that have been um, done in this space fail to show a significant benefit of doing so. So, we have um, several large trials here which basically failed to show um, uh, significant improvements in time to progression, uh, overall survival, or progression-free survival. And so this really has unfortunately dampened our enthusiasm for at least low regional therapy plus TKIs. Now, of course, um, you know with, with the introduction of immunotherapy, this is now being sort of reassessed. There is the thought of um, sort of uh, neo, releasing neoantigens. Potentially augmenting um, uh, immunotherapy effect when used in combination with local regional therapy. We see some of this um, uh, once again already with the abscopal effect, where if you treat with local regional therapy, you may see um, induce immune responses in untreated lesions. And so this is now um, being approached in terms of combination trials moving forward several of them ongoing, as you can see listed here, using different combinations of systemic therapy plus of local regional therapy. And so we anticipate these reporting out over the next couple of years. I don't think that this should be done outside of a clinical trial um, routinely at this point. Um, but once again, we do anticipate these data coming out um, over the next couple of years. Now, um, uh, briefly moving on uh, in terms of, uh, you know, moving from the local regional therapy space to earlier stages of disease. um, uh, You know, we know that there are surgical therapies that are available for patients with early stage disease, uh, namely hepatic resection being one of these. Um, Hepatic resection is uh, primarily reserved for patients with good liver function, uh, child PUA, and uh, no portal hypertension with a platelet count typically greater than 100,000, although this is now being reassessed Um, with the availability of uh, laparoscopic or robotic approaches, um, uh, minimally invasive approaches to hepatic resection. So if somebody's doing a small resection, uh, one can think about doing this in patients with minimal portal hypertension uh, as long as the future liver remnant is is sufficient. However, although resection is curative, there are high rates of recurrence that can um, be up to 50 to 70% at five years. And unfortunately, at this time, we have no proven adjuvant therapy. So much like we saw with the local regional space, there, was, uh, there were trials that uh, looked at the combination of uh, TKI therapy after high-risk uh, recurrence patients. Uh, notably, the STORM trial looked at um, serafinib uh, in patients who were high-risk of recurrence after resection or ablation. And unfortunately, these, uh, th- this trial failed to show a benefit of TKI therapy in these high-risk patients. Of course, everything's being reassessed now that we have uh, more effective therapies in the systemic therapy space. So we see these systemic therapy agents being diffused down to earlier stages of disease. You can see several of these trials listed here looking at different systemic therapies um, being evaluated after resection or ablation. And we anticipate these studies reporting out as early as later this year. Now, of course, we've already heard about how immunotherapy has completely transformed the systemic therapy landscape but we anticipate that these will diffuse down into earlier stages of disease. So this is no longer the time where we can be like, I don't need to know about immunotherapy or you know, PD-1s and you know, CTLA-4s. This is something where we will probably all have to understand these immunotherapy combinations and how it impacts um, our sort of individual practices. Now we talked about the adjuvant setting. There are also um, interesting um, early studies looking at this in the neo-adjuvant setting. So you can see here um, a small study uh, that came out of Johns Hopkins in terms of taking patients who were borderline resectable, taking a look at the combination of cabozantinib and nivolumab. So another combination of um, IO plus TKI. And what they were able to show is that this combination was able to um, uh, um, sort of quote unquote downstage or, or um, make borderline resectable, resectable patients surgical candidates, and we can see that um, there was uh, notable responses in uh, a significant proportion of these patients, and those patients who had a pathologic response clearly did better than those patients without a pathologic response. So interesting data, once again, that this may not only be adjuvant, but potentially neo neoadjuvant um, in the future. Once again, larger studies um, planned for the future. Finally, um, uh, immunotherapy, um, you know, the the sort of interactions with transplantation have always been a little bit concerning. We know that if um, uh, immunotherapy is used after transplantation, there's a high risk of graft loss. There's a high risk of mortality, and so this has historically not been done. Um, Interestingly, there were data coming out of Mount Sinai that showed that patients could receive immunotherapy even within the month of liver transplantation and those patients appeared to do fine after um, liver transplantation at least in the early period and there are now studies ongoing in terms of taking patients listed for liver transplantation and potentially bridging them with immunotherapy i wouldn't say that this i would say that this definitely should not be done outside of a clinical trial i do think that this is interesting although potentially risky. Um, And so um, I think that there are going to be data that are necessary in this space in understanding how immunotherapy can be used potentially pre-transplant, although I would argue still not used post-transplant. Finally, um, you've heard this before, um, and I imagine you will continue to hear this throughout the presentation. Multidisciplinary care is critical for these patients. It's not just a feel-good concept. Um, and it's not just highlighted by the fact that all three of us are here um, discussing cases and going over this. This is highlighted by data, including data from our center, that shows that this improves clinical outcomes. This basically improves um, guideline-concordant treatment. It improves time to treatment. Um, and most notably, there are several studies that show that this improves overall survival. So not just a feel-good concept. This should be regarded as standard of care for our HCC patients and will be only increasingly important as we see the silos of HCC care completely being broken down. You're going to see transitions going from the right, so patients stage migrating to the right, as well as being stage migrating to the left in terms of downstaging, increasing combinations. So this is going to be increasingly important as we move forward.
1: Thanks, Ahmed. That was that was that was fantastic. Thank you very much for that uh, for that overview. So this is perfect. We have about fifteen minutes left to go through some some cases, and I got some questions here. But before I go through, I want I want to ask uh, Lipika and Amit, Can you tell me a little bit? You know, there's so much going on now in categorizing the IOs and then the TKIs. You know, with so much that's coming out and it continue to come out, are you going to? categorize IOs then switch to TKIs and back and forth? Are you going to stick with IOs? How are you thinking of of managing that? Because you're going to have a lot of options available to you. And this is sort of like a, a, a combination of multiple questions. How do you plan to navigate by categories? How do you plan on tackling that?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. I think part of it is seeing the data that are coming out from new frontline trials seeing, you know, there's a linvatinib-pembro trial, that's a combination trial, there's an ipinevo trial, that's a combination trial, and of course, we have a tezobev and durvatremi. And so when someone has had um, a TKI and immunotherapy in the front line, or a VEGF-directed therapy and immunotherapy in the front line, your question is exactly the question we ask ourselves in Medon Clinic, which is after someone has progression on a combo, what is plan B? And so there are different sorts of prospective trials and also retrospective uh, chart reviews, looking at what's effective after a tezobev. I think uh, still to be determined in terms of what's the optimal next choice. I think a lot of us use serafinib or linbatinib and then go on to other drugs. Um, a lot of people also use ipinivo next. I think this is a space where we need novel therapies, and I think there's a space where we need biomarkers. And certainly a place where, um, because we don't have a standard in the second line, um, thinking about combinations where we have liver-directed therapy uh, next and or in combination with uh, systemic therapy. I think that um, as uh, I've spoken at different IR meetings, you know, when you give systemic therapy, people feel like a patient because they're coming to see you every two weeks, every three weeks, every four weeks. And, you know, all the I.O. companies are working on switching Q2-week regimens to Q4-week regimens with higher dosing or Q3-week regimens to Q6-week regimens. But, you know, one of the beautiful pieces of liver-directed therapy is you treat and then people often have 6, 8, 12, sometimes 2 years, at months or 2 years where they don't have to actually come and see you as much as just for surveillance. And that is a huge thing for patients.
3: I mean... Yeah, I think, um, you know, I completely agree with Lipika, and I think this is a data-free zone, and I think that's really because um, all of these trials were done using in comparison to serafinib. Um, in the frontline setting, or lenvatinib now with the, you know, LEAP trial. And um, and all of the second-line trials were done after Srafnib. And so there's really no data to say what we should do after our now current first-line therapy. So there's no data to show what's the best therapy after a tezobab. There's no data to say should you go on to a, a combination of, you know, should you use a TKI therapy or should you use, um, you know, combination of PD-1, CTLA-4 um, so, we don't really know what the best therapy is, and the way that I look at this is just do something. So, like, the key thing is not to do nothing. Um, so, you know, what I would say is at this point, with the, the lack of comparative, direct comparative data, I, I think, you know, there's, somewhat, there's almost something available for almost every patient outside of a child you so we have data for like serafinib and linvatinib now in terms of child PU-B data showing tolerability. We have data for nivolumab in child PU-B patients. So even if you have a child PU-B patient, you can theoretically choose something. And if you have a child a patient, you have multiple um, sort of agents on, on, the, on the sort of table. Um, but I think that simplistically, I'd say if I use a tezobev in the first line, we tend to use a similar sort of sequencing strategy right now in terms of going on to the old first line therapies, serafinib and linvatinib and then going on to the prior second-line therapies. This will only become increasingly complex as we have more and more first-line therapies to report out. So speaking of that, that's a perfect segue, would you agree to be maybe slightly
1: controversial, maybe not so slightly controversial, that because of all the information that we're getting at such a rapid pace, we may need to commit the ultimate infraction and perform cross-trial comparisons? (laughs) Your thoughts?
2: I mean I think this is the art of medicine I totally agree (laughs) you know we um, the pros of that is those those are the data we have so we have to use them the challenges of of it of course are that the baseline populations can often be different so looking at the table ones across different trials and um, you know with And some of the trials are much more global than others, and some of them have a greater population of Asian patients than others. They have different mixes of patients with hepatitis B. Um, They have different mixes of patients with portal vein thrombosis. Um, But ultimately, we work with the data that we have, so we certainly do cross-trial comparisons.
3: I Completely agree, and I think that not only comparing the the demographics of those patients, but also looking at post-progression treatment So we have to understand that a trial for example the Brave 150 trial Versus trials that are subsequently done There are gonna be patients who are on that trial who then receive a tezobev in the second line And so it's not like you're only competing with what you receive in the first line You're competing with first line plus all of the post-progression treatments and so it's gonna be tough the the sort of post hoc sort of analyses of these trials are gonna be fascinating. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't know, but we're gonna have to do some kind of cross-trial comparisons, but it's not just going to be 19 months versus 17 months. It's gonna be the type of thing where you're gonna have to really understand the nuances of these data to understand what those cross-trial comparisons and potentially post-hoc analyses and subgroup analyses really suggest.
1: So, So you just heard two, I think, very important learning points, which is, in my opinion, when I'm reading an HCC manuscript, The baseline characteristics table, I spend 50% of the time on who are these patients? What are the etiologies? Where are they from? How much disease is there? What's their liver function? It's a very important component of reading any manuscript because that will then set the stage as to what you are seeing, number one. And number two, post-progression, post-progression. All of these patients are getting post-progression treatments. We need to know what they are. Some improve survival, right? So that affects overall survival. So notice that, read that. It's a very important component. I'm at, go and ahead.
3: you know, we had you and I have talked about this as well. I mean, there's stuff in the table one, and then there's the stuff that you wish was in the table one, yes. right? So I mean, table one tells you you have extrahepatic spread and you have portal vein thrombosis. Yes. It does not tell you the degree of intrahepatic tumor burden. Yeah. Um, and those things are critical. So you can imagine somebody who has a single lymph node, but who had a complete response within the liver to prior local regional therapy, is very different than somebody who has bilobar, multifocal involvement right. plus a, a portal vein, so um, sort of an extrahepatic met. Right. But both of those patients are in the extrahepatic yes category. Yes. So there's so much nuance to this that you don't see in a table one that can make cross trial comparisons very dangerous.
1: And that stems from a lot of the trials historically being based on unresectable, uh, not amenable to TACE or Y90 or whatever. And that category has become sort of very, sort of the the detail has been lost. And I think that's part of the component that really needs to be elucidated in contemporary trials is, Where's the disease? Right lobe, left lobe, bilobar. How many tumors? How's, what size are they? Because if we're going to look at things like what KUDO is doing, then we need to look at all that stuff from the baseline characteristics as well. Because at the end of the day, that's what we do at Tumor Board. Look at these large tumors. Look at this bilobar disease. This trial did the same. This is how they did. So that's, that's I think, those are great teaching points for everybody looking at HCC data. So let's take a look at this case here. So now we have, we have an infiltrative tumor again. But this one specifically infiltrative due to the vascular invasion. So, right portal vein thrombosis, good performance status, ECOG 0, doing well. Normal liver function, Chalpu A, but BCLCC because of portal vein thrombosis. So, uh, let's start with uh, Lipica. So, same family, except this one is specifically PVT. What are your, what are your thoughts on this one?
2: So this is classic BCLC stage C. It fits right into the category of the patients who went on to atezobev and went on to Dervatremi. So I think um, certainly a standard would be reasonable to think about atezobev and um, Dervatremi. To be very honest, I think the answer is very similar to the answer with the infiltrative HCC case that we had before, in that um, you know atezobev would be certainly standard here, but. There are several patients who have this picture, especially if the tumor is you know let's say seven centimeters or something like that um, who do very well with liver directed therapy and it's if it's not a large tumor burden. I like to see the AFP as well okay. um, and uh, yeah, but very similar conversation okay, I'm it.
3: Yeah, I, I agree with Lipica. So, um, you know, I think that obviously, you know, the prior slide said no metastasis. This one, I would definitely do a metastatic workup. Um, sort of uh, yep. like to see the AFP. I, I think a very similar sort of um, sort of discussion. Instead of like a you know B minus, this person's a C plus. So like just on the other side of this in terms of, um, you know. But I, I think that it still comes down to something like radioembolization. Um, potentially surgery, if the patient had, um, you know, once again, extended sort of indications here in terms of uh, if the patient had an adequate platelet count, um, versus systemic therapy, a Bev or dervatremi. I think that, you know, in contrast to the other one where if it was a tiebreaker, I'd be like leaning a little bit more towards radioembolization. This one, I'd be leaning a little bit more towards systemic therapy, but um, I think you could go the other way.
1: So so we are in, you know, when we uh, mix and match, we are in a data-free zone when we do this sort of stuff would you think it would be unreasonable to start with, say, an LRT, probably Y90, I would think, with PVT, and then plan, again, data-free zone. We don't have data on this, but because the, the tolerability of each treatment in child PUA is very good, would you think that's unreasonable to start with an LRT, like Y90, and then go on to systemic therapy at, say, day 30, which I think probably many people in this audience would like to do, or do you think that's, you know, the data just doesn't support that, or it's too data free and just a little too freewheeling? Uh, how data free is that?
2: <laughs> I would say that it's not unreasonable, but show me a phase three trial. Sure. Okay. I'll work. <laughs> I'll
1: work on that one. Yes. Yep. Yep.
2: I would say we certainly do that in our tumor board. We have, um, we do radioembo for a case like this and do a TezoBev next. Um, but. I think the more we make that commonplace without having data, the less we're really going to be able to see if that approach is the best approach to do. That's fair. And so... Um,
3: Amit, what do you think about that Yeah, I guess, you know, I agree. So data-free, not not necessarily wrong. I think if I were to do that, I would try to get this patient on a clinical trial. I think that's the best way for this patient to get this combination, if that's sort of truly what was um, desired. Um, And you know, I think it would, in part, also depend on sort of the age, sort of the comorbidity, what's the intent here um and so like i I think that the one sort of downside potentially of doing this approach is that there are some patients who you treat with local regional therapy and even though the intent is to do this selectively the patient then has liver dysfunction and then is not as sort of clean coming into systemic therapy so that's the only downside to be in my estimation outside of data-free, but that's really the downside in terms of potentially that approach.
1: So that's a great teaching point, right? One of our obligations as we do LRTs is to make sure that the patient can benefit from all treatments. You have to be careful. You can't, you know, taste whole livers, right lobes, left lobes, Y90s, everything sort of willy-nilly without recognizing that at some point they're going to progress. They'll need systemic therapy, and you can't present the patient who's a child-pused C10, for example, for systemic therapy. So this is this very, uh, very important interplay. We are an interventional radiology audience. Out of curiosity, uh, how many in the audience would start with a systemic therapy uh, for a patient with this uh, portal vein thrombose? Who would start with systemic therapy? Okay. Who would start with an LRT followed by systemic therapy? We have a lot of... Not- now, what about... Uh, we've only got about eight votes. So everybody, <laughs> everybody, I don't know what everybody else is doing, still thinking about it. Anybody want to... Wanna, wanna, um, want to propound on what they would would uh, do with this
3: patient clinical trials never clinical answer. trials is a good answer <laughs> always
1: a good answer send to Mass General or UT Southwestern that's a reasonable answer anybody disagree with that or think that we've missed one of the discussion points okay we'll we'll continue the next case thanks guys let's go on to I'm just making sure I'm capturing all the questions that are being asked okay this one's a little bit different um, so this is a four centimeter tumor uh, dome and um, has some weight loss uh, lost 10 pounds or so uh, good liver function child pugh a but is a BCLCC so advanced disease because of the weight loss so no PVT, no metastases has that lesion in the dome and let's assume that the surgeon has looked at it There's portal hypertension not resectable probably could receive transplant at some point. So comments on this four centimeter dome lesion? Lipka.
2: You know, so this is where I was mentioning the three flavors of BCLC stage C. I personally do not make decisions based on ECOG performance status in terms of calling those patients C and moving towards systemic therapy. My first choice, as Riyadh was saying, is asking surgery what options we have. And here we take into account, you know, what's the reason for liver dysfunction? Do they have Hep B? Do they have Hep C? Do they have a background of cirrhosis? Do they have a field defect where they're likely to develop more HCCs? In which case we would push more towards transplant and surgery. It sounds like the patient has portal hypertension, so surgery is not an option. So it certainly would favor um, moving down a transplant pathway for this patient. So liver-directed therapy followed by transplant.
1: So LRT trying to get the transplant for this patient. Important point that Libica mentioned, she puts less weight on the ECOG component of BCLC than PVT and metastases, which are a bit more uh, uh, objective. Um, I mean,
3: Yeah, I, I think I'm, um, I, I agree completely. I think um, LRT and then, you know, bridge to liver transplantation, 100% the way to go with this patient. I guess I'm a little bit surprised, relatively small tumor that the patient presents symptomatically. Um, and so I would be just, I, I'd be worried that this could be an aggressive tumor. I'd sort of once again be interested in seeing the AFP here. Um, obviously needs a metastatic workup. I just, you know, unlikely with the small tumor size, but just it looks like a potentially aggressive so, so, tumor. So that's
1: a, that's a great point. So, just, I'm at, so I said, well, look, you got four-semit tumor. Why is he an ECOG-1 weight loss, et cetera? Is that really true? So I'll be honest with you. You know, in our analyses, in our databases, you know, when we give performance status, we give the performance status that medical oncology assigns. And that can be challenging, uh, you know, and sometimes we're like, wow, it's a three centimeter tumor, but there are other things going on that the patient was assigned an ECOG-1. It's not the cleanest, but that's what happens. And so I, I fully admit that some of our data are probably confounded by that artifact, that are they really a one, yep. not the, really the true spirit of the one in the BCLC, and that's, a, that's an artifact we have. But is there a question?
3: Maybe, it's be ignorant, but I'm trying to understand the weight loss and all the systemic symptoms On a 4-centimeter solitary lesion in the liver. Can you teach me? Yeah, I think the one thing, so when we think of ECOG performance status, this is my sort of perspective on this, Um, it's easier in other cancers where it's cleaner. They have a cancer, Um, and then you can assign the ECOG performance status. I think it's always tough with HEC because you have HEC and then you have the underlying liver disease. These patients are often comorbid, et cetera. And so um, I think the other thing is sometimes people misassign an ECOG performance status, and there's another reason for this weight loss. It's not really cancer-related cachexia. It's really weight loss because the patient has some other, you know, they have ascites, or they have something else that's driving the weight loss. So I actually think Riyadh's right. I think the ECOG performance status is often misrepresented and poorly assigned for these patients. And that's why we need better objective measures, much like the LB score, for example, instead of the Child-Pugh score, in terms of assessing some of this functional status. Um, It's not as clean in in HCC. Um, But that being said, um, we, we have some recent data that does show that cachexia can even occur in some patients with early stage disease. Once again, it may relate to tumor biology. So we know that not every tumor grows at the same rate, there's sort of the is going down the sort of highway at 70, and then there's the cars going 100, and this may be one of those cars going 100 miles per hour, and yeah, so for, it may just yeah. be a fast, aggressive tumor um, that, you know, if you really believe the weight loss and the ECOG-1 is related to this tumor, may really highlight that this patient's at increased risk of progression um, after treatment, and so just may impact your treatment. Yeah, decisions. for the
1: purpose of the BCLC, it's supposed to be cancer-related weight loss, specifically attributed to this. But there are many patients that walk in that are, you know, not ECOG zeros for a variety of other reasons. And it's very hard to say, yeah, but you're, you're, you're a one, but not really a one because of, of this. And so you know, I remember in some of our databases, we have BCLC stage with and without ECOG, like, you know, believing it or not believing it. Yeah. You know, and so this is sort of one of these things. So it can be very challenging. But again, it brings you back to the multidisciplinary tumor board about all of this discussions. like, look at this. This is a guy ECOG1, technically advanced. But we want to get them to transplant, we're going to apply an LRT to bridge them to minimize progression, right? Important concept in the tumor board. We've got two minutes left, let's do that last, uh, let's do that last case. Um, so this one is a, uh, actually I remember this patient, uh, uh, a, an asymptomatic uh, uh, patient uh, with a large tumor. Um, he was in his mid-40s, uh, slightly elevated liver function, but a large tumor, Chalpyu B. Chop B. So, I uh, mean, any thoughts on what are you doing now with patients that chop B?
3: yeah so um you know we sort of referenced this before a child PB is not a child pew I see his billy's two point one yeah. i don 't know if he's otherwise compensated or decompensated, but you said he's in his forties, yes, I mean, very young guy yes um this is somebody we 'd be personally aggressive with. This is somebody where we would um treat with low criginal therapy, assuming he 's not a b nine Yep. assuming he 's on the healthier side of the b maybe a b seven um this is somebody we would treat with radioembolization um and we would uh consider. Um, downstaging, so he's beyond you know downstaging. We would look for a living donor for this patient. Um, so we would treat with um, radioembolization and then try to get him listed for living donor liver transplantation. Okay, Libica.
2: Yeah, I would say very similar answer. I would say the data for systemic therapy. I think there's a Nobel Prize waiting out there for anyone who can cure cirrhosis and reverse it because it's certainly the main issue that we deal with in HCC. So if we can get this guy on a curative pathway, that's our first choice. Um, I mentioned a little bit earlier, there's some prospective data with serafinib, there's some data with linvatinib, and of course there's prospective data with uh, nivolumab as well. But the efficacy is still modest in um, uh, child PUB. So if this is the only tumor that the patient has, would certainly support upfront liver directed therapy.
1: Can you teach us a little bit, just as a final thought um, about, again, data-free or or moderate data, but on the safety of the IOs in child PUBs? (laughs) compared to the traditional chemotherapies?
2: Yeah, so the study with nivolumab, it was in patients who have B7 or B8. They could not have had a greater than 3.0, and um, they couldn't have had decompensated cirrhosis with like ascites requiring paracentesis. And so luckily, the hepatic dysfunction was not higher in that cohort than in the child PUA's. So safety-wise, it was quite similar, Um, and the, Response rate was also like relatively similar but lower, you know. But it's certainly something that um, if this patient had a systemic disease, that would be my first choice.
3: I mean, yeah, I think a little bit of the, you know, the other thing that we're also seeing now is we're seeing more and more real world data come out with a TESOBEV and extended yeah, patient populations. So you talked about, you know, the IMGA 150 trial, sort of clean population, child PUA had their EGD, et cetera, et cetera. And so now we've seen several publications come out in terms of real world data for a TESOBEV. Um, and so we're starting to see expansion of atezolizumab in well-selected child PUB patients, B7 patients, um, and this being relatively well-tolerated in the, the data that are reported, maybe selection bias of who actually reports this. Imagine the, the centers who are doing this and like having terrible outcomes are like, we're gonna hide those data. But <laughs> but like there are some real-world data in terms of um, extended use of these new combinations in child PUB patients as well. And so I think we're gonna start seeing this and feeling more comfortable in well-selected child PB patients with these new combinations. So I think the teaching
1: point is, at least for some of these IOs, it's a discussion point if you have child PB disease. It, it is an option. It's not always an option, but it's more in the discussion than, than it used to be. So I'd like to thank everyone for their attendance. I'm glad you had a great SIR meeting. Thank you, Dr. Goyal, Dr. Singal for um, uh, joining us today. I hope you found this helpful, and thank you, everyone.
0: This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute, Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash NUC860. This activity is supported by independent educational grants from AstraZeneca, Genentech, a member of the Roche Group, and Novocure Incorporated.